Welcome back to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. As we're recording this, around 22 million people in the Horn of Africa are at risk of starvation, according to the UN World Food Programme. The region is struggling with a double whammy of drought and high global food and fuel prices caused by Russia's war in Ukraine. But the irony is, many of the world's most nutritious and widely consumed crops are in fact native to Africa, including sorghum, pearl millet, and yam. Not to mention superfoods like moringa, baobab, and cocoa. So how did the continent become so dependent on food imports from other parts of the world? Today, we're joined by two of Africa's leading food sovereignty advocates to find out how colonialism and capitalism have historically undermined the continent's ability to feed and nourish itself, and what it must now do to regain control over its food systems. Hi everyone, and welcome to GLF Live. My name is Nasike Claire. I'm the project lead of the seed and food campaign at Greenpeace Africa, and I'm delighted to be a moderator for this conversation. Today, we'll be conversing on a topic that's more critical now than perhaps ever before, and a topic that's very close to my heart. How can African nations regain food sovereignty over their food systems? In the previous two years, we've seen the impacts of COVID-19 on food systems. We've seen Africa, like the rest of the world, battle with famine, drought, and hunger. We've seen the ripple effects of the war between Ukraine and Russia. Can Africa break free from food imports and localize its food systems? I firmly believe that Africa can sustainably produce enough to feed its people. It has done before in the past. We have the land, labor, and the technical know-how. And I believe that all that's needed is favorable policies and political support for Africa to localize its food systems and reduce its dependence on imports. So today, we are diving into how we got into this state and what must be done to restore food sovereignty for a resilient and equitable food future in Africa. But before we get started, I'll quickly like to mention two things. First, we'll be taking questions from the audience at the end. So please drop your questions in the chat boxes of the platforms on which you're listening. And second, this JLF Live is going is to get the conversations going about topics that are going to be discussed on the 15th of September in the fully digital GLF Africa conference, which I highly recommend that you attend. So please join the thousands who've already registered by using the links in the chat box. And if you're an African, we are happy to share that the tickets are free for you. Now to the business of the day. Let us meet our speakers. We have Amanda Namai. Amanda is a youth advocate for climate action and zero hunger. Currently, she's the go-getters Africa lead at the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, AGRA. And she has an incredible history of work, taking food challenges from her region in East Africa and raising them into the international policy arena. Second, we have Million Belay, the general coordinator of the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa and a top expert on agroecology, agricultural biodiversity, seeds, and food sovereignty, particularly at the local level in Africa. So welcome both to this conversation. To begin with, I would like you to explain to a layman, what does food sovereignty mean to you? And Amanda, I'd like to start with you. 
thank you, uh, Claire. So, you know, these terms are, as you say, quite high level and, and to put it simply, it just means um, what um, leeway do people have in, um, should I say, forging their own paths in the creation of food systems in a way that works for them, their environment, their people, their diets, um, without any pressures that are imposed on them from any other faction. That's what I would say. Thank you, Amanda. Million, what can you tell us about food sovereignty? I think to understand uh, food security, uh, you have to understand, I mean, food sovereignty, you have to understand two other terms, you know, food security and the right to food. Um, basically, uh, food security is about in you know, a situation that exists when all people at all times have physical, social, economic access to sufficient, safe, and nutritious food. That means dietary needs and food preferences for an active energy life. That is no problem with this, but the problem. It's not clear how um, food is secured. Um, it doesn't mention, it doesn't recognize the ex exploitation of food and distributors. Um, it doesn't say anything about the agency of people and not clear how uh, people feed themselves. It's not clear whether the food should be culturally appropriate or not. And sustainability issue is not addressed. The right to food is basically says food is basic to human rights and recognizes that all people should be free from hunger, insecurity, and malnutrition. And people should be secure across, um, people should have access to security in terms of employment or support or producing their own food. So food, food sovereignty politicizes the food agenda uh, uh, because uh, basically, people's, uh, people are able to produce their own food, but can they control uh, their food system? Do they have ownership of the food system? Um, are they self-sufficient in terms of food? Um, so I think the, the, the issue around food sovereignty is, is around the food should be for people, you know, it should not be for commerce or trade, whatever, basically at the people trade. They have to trade, but it is for people. And the, the producers and distributors of food are valued. The food system should be localized. Um, it, this, this address, the localization addresses all the environmental problems that we are facing. And food should be democratically controlled by people. Um, and this is not what you know, most uh, companies uh, don't like. And the knowledge of people should be recognized. And food is produced in a sustainable and agricultural way. That's what food sovereignty is basically. Sorry to go on this, you know. Thank you both for that uh, response. And Milan, just building on your on your response, you said food should be for the people, and uh, the people should actually own, take ownership of the food systems. So I have a follow up questions on that. Um, Africa being the birthplace of a number of miracle gains, be it fruits, vegetables, everything needed to feed and nourish a continent is in Africa. So going back in history, what do you think gave rise to the current challenges that uh, Africa's food system faces? Uh, 
think you know this answer takes you know the whole day but uh, in short um before the maritime the european maritime traders came and disrupted african food system africans have their own food system you know their own production system their own trade system uh very 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 much sophisticated but then uh, the, the european maritime traders came and they disrupted all that and they started the slave trade and uh, able bodies uh from african communities were taken and it's disrupted hugely the availability of labor um, disrupted local community relationships and disrupted also the knowledge availability in the local community and disrupted also knowledge transfers after colonization you know the, the colonials came uh the back of the european maritime traders uh the action focused on few and valuable crops mainly uh, cotton, um, rice, um, maize, you know, the, the, those products which are uh, important for the European markets instead of Africans feeding themselves. And during the independence time also, I think the legacy of the colonial system was left and through um, a various system of policies and agreements with international uh, traders, and also uh, other uh, mainly European in the you know the, the northern countries, um, the internal control of the food production uh, was disrupted very much. You know, internal control of food production uh, responded to the ecological, political, social needs of the people. Now the food is um, controlled externally uh, because we are the the the, the vagaries of the market started to operate when people started to dread, you know? So that the disruption was, was very high. Uh, the self-organization of people based on their own feedback mechanisms was disrupted also. And uh, their policy was concentrated. We can talk about the IMF, impact of IMF, you know, and this kind of international organizations. And the accountable borrowing started with, with African, uh, uh governments and this borrowing uh, put people into debt countries into debt i mean um and this debt was very difficult uh, to pay mostly that the borrowing was taken for projects or ideas that come from uh from outside, not from africa uh so it was very difficult you know to get to uh, uh put infrastructure in african countries to to service uh, the local e economy and the diversity of communities has hugely, you know, um, the production system was directed to a few high value crops, uh, currently, uh, you know, well, around maize and some of these crops. So, so, in short, this is what has happened. Um, thank you very much, Million, for that response. And Amanda, coming to you, having um, had Million speak of, you know, um, the impact that slavery has had in terms of um, reducing the labor available for food production um, in Africa, in your opinion, and bringing that to the present and the future, what are some of the ongoing issues that you think uh, perpetuate food shortages and, and challenges in Africa? Okay, um, yeah, so Million has shared a, a wealth of knowledge, taking us all the way back in history. I really like history. Um, so I will talk on something that um, 
is a cross-cutting issue that still affects food productivity. And this, I will begin with, you know, the vagaries of climate action and climate change. And we see that um, in Sub-Saharan Africa, we are lagging behind in inculcating climate smart agricultural practices because most of our production is heavily dependent on rain-fed agriculture. And so this affects the the productivity and the yield of the farmers at production level. And then also we see post-production, uh, we do also suffer heavily from food loss and food waste. And this is also um, contributed to by some of the market linkage um, gaps that we have. Um, between farm to market, uh, we see a lot of post-harvest losses, um, with some of which can be addressed by some initiatives such as value addition, which will increase the shelf life. We can also see that we are heavily dependent on some of uh, staple foods. So whenever we have um, bumper harvest, then we find that um, farmers are not able to get a good price for their crop. Um, there's also a lot of flooding in the market. So you find some of these uh, produce getting rotten at, at the farm level. Um, and so also the inadequate and inefficient food mapping that we have um, around. So you can find some areas are in excess. Um, Claire, I, I believe you've seen some of these pictures of um, cows being fed avocados or tomatoes, heaps and heaps of tomatoes actually rotting and going to waste. And so um, uh, those are some of the issues that I see that are still perpetuated and are contributing to um, acute food shortages, um, uh, not only in my country, but in most of the African countries. Thank you so much, Amanda, for that response. Yes, indeed, I've seen uh, I've seen that. And it's such a pity that, you know, farmers have to grow food and then lose that food as well. So it's a double wastage of resources. And over to you, Million, uh, hearing Amanda speak about the impact of climate change on food systems. I'm aware that at, at AFSA, you focus on agroecology as a key solution um, towards freeing and liberating the African food system, but we cannot speak of freeing and liberating the African food system if we don't take into consideration the impact uh, that climate change has. So based on the farmers' rights and freedom from corporate control, can you tell us more about what the term agroecology means to you and how it should be applied to boost food sovereignty and local communities, particularly those that depend on rain-fed agriculture to grow food? And lastly, why you, should, why you think African farmers need to be free from corporate control of uh, multinational corporations? Um, thank you very much. Um, I think there's one thing that we should uh talk about um, the elephant in the room, um, which is why are we in a problem now? Um, looking at an Afri African agriculture, not in terms of the impacts of the system, but why uh, the why of the system? Why, why is what's happening happening? Is a very important question. I think we are suffering uh, because of a narrative a narrative which puts Africa as poor and the destitute, African farmers without knowledge of agricultural production or to produce food. Um, uh, Africa, uh, it says Africa cannot produce without the application of agrochemicals. Uh, it says um, that the seed in Africa is iron, so 
need to bring hybrid seeds. Uh, it says that the, the African agriculture should be market-oriented agriculture. You know, it has to be oriented or reoriented to market. Um, it says land in the hands of Africans is not productive, so that has to be given to those who produce on. That's why he's uh, fueling uh, land grabbing in Africa. So, so these and other other uh, uh, narratives, which are supported by philanthropists, you know, like uh, the Gates Foundation, uh, the the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and um, the Rockefeller and others. Um, uh, these are in the, in, the, in the government aid agencies, governments, you know, uh, a slew of uh, African uh, agricultural experts, all are behind this narrative. And this narrative is destroying the continent. Um, and the narrative is pushed by, uh, by an institution in Africa. Uh, which is called AGRA, the Alliance for Revolution in Africa. We cannot put every problem in Africa in, uh, in the hands of uh, AGRA, but it's a key actor because it's uh, uh, changing so much of the policies and the regulations and laws in Africa. So our response to that, our counter movement to that, our solution to that is agroecology. And we are not um, coming into agroecology through an ideological, uh, or, or any other route. It's a practical route, you know. Uh, since 2013, uh, in the last uh, close to 10 years, we have been doing range of research. And we are looking at the research, a growing amount of research all over the world. And it shows that agroecology can work. Agroecology is basically working with nature, you know, uh, producing food based on natural processes. Um, simply, you see, so it's an agricultural product based, based on the, the an agricultural practice based on ecological uh, principles. That's why it's called agroecology. But some some people take this as uh, as if it is going back to um, what we were doing uh, some some centuries ago or what's happening in rural communities. But it is a science, you know, refined science. Um, science around soil, science around the, around the behavior of plants, and science about the market, social, social sciences are included in agroecology. It's also a range of practice, a range of practices to improve soil, to improve the health of plants, to increase the diversity in the plants, to, to use the knowledge that local communities have and combine it with science, the reject science, you know? Uh, Cutting edge science and people's science are used together for, for agro, agroecology. But since we have to fight with this narrative that I, I explained uh, about, we, we use agroecology also as a social movement. It's a social movement. On one hand, we bring in solutions, a range of solutions, and they're out there in Africa. They are seen and supported. On the other hand, we fight this narrative. Uh, so that the, the social movement side of ecology is also very much important. So that's what I wanted to say. And you asked whether what is the dangers of uh, of uh, this narrative or the way we are going in, in Africa. I think I see some dangers. One, 
it exasperates the food challenges that we have. It, it exasperates malnutrition. It, it exasperates the poverty. Yeah? Um, so, so, so that's one, one problem. Second, it creates and it's creating health problem. Look at any indicators in Africa. Health challenges are increasing by, by the day. So it, it's, it's, it's very, 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 we are in a very precarious environment. Diabetes is increasing. Cancer is increasing in Africa. You know. Food-related problems are getting much worse. And our environment is degrading hugely across all, all, all indicators. And then this is because of the food system that we are, we are following. We have, we are rich in culture in Africa. We have plenty of food in Africa in terms of diversity. And that, the diversity in the food that you see is useless without uh, the diversity in, in the crops, on the root crops included. You see, I mean, um, the, in the diversity of the knowledge around it. So that knowledge, that cultural knowledge is, is being eroded and the right to food is not at the center of our food system. So one of the environmental problems is the climate change. Huh? If we go the way that we are going now through this narrative, we the climate change or the climate crisis would worsen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Milan, for that uh, expansive response. And I, I think I picked a few things from, from your response that Africa has always been portrayed as, as poor and destitute when before colonization, actually Africa fed its people and Africa was not dependent on any other country for food. But right now we have majority of our food coming from, from other countries Like look at foodstuffs such as wheat and rice. Majority of it is imported from, from countries such as um, Ukraine, Russia, all that. And so Amanda, I'd like to come to you on this next question. Africa is portrayed like, Africa is portrayed like um, a poor continent, but in the work that you're doing at Generation Africa, I would like you to talk to us. What, what, what do you guys do? What, what are you working um, on how are you making sure that Africa rises or Africa lifts itself up beyond the narrative that it is poor and destitute when it comes to its food systems? Thank you, Claire. Um, and so that is the very reason that Generation Africa exists. And to give you a background is, um, so Generation Africa is a partnership initiative um, that seeks to transform Africa's food systems for the young people, by the young people, with the young people. And this is hinged on four pillars, where we have inspiration pillar, curation and support pillar, research and advocacy pillar, and uh, the ecosystem development framework pillar. So the inspiration pillar, as the name suggests, is to inspire the current crop of youth agripreneurs who are transforming Africa's food systems. And as you are aware that there is that narrative that keeps going, that there are not enough youth. Um, the average age of the farmer keeps increasing, but for us, we are looking at it from a different tangent in that we do have active youth agripreneurs who are transforming um, their food systems in their respective countries, in the region, and possibly the continent. So how do we identify them and how do we applaud them? Um, and this we do through two competitions that we currently run. We have the Go-Getters Agripreneur Prize competition and we also have the Pitch AgriHack competition. So the Go-Getters Agripreneurship 
Prize competition is broad spectrum and looks at different interventions across the agricultural subsector, from production to uh, consumer side. Um, and we have two categories of awards where we're looking at um, the grand prize and an impact award. And so uh, even in awarding these winners, we also work with the finalists whom we call the high potential SMEs. And we work with them throughout their life cycle, um, at least to the stage where they can exit the youth brackets, which for us, we consider at 35. Um, and in addition to, to this, we also plug them into various opportunities um, such as the agribusiness deal room. Uh, we also have a scholarship um, opportunity for them to advance their skills with the University of Utah for a master's in business creation. Um, we also have a fellowship program and we also have bespoke opportunities that are available to them depending on um, the needs and wants that they share with us. Um, we then have the Pitch AgriHack competition and this looks at the tech side. Um, so we're looking at, I mean, as you said, uh, Africa's uh, population is primarily young. Um, and so we see the role of technology playing a huge role in not only just agriculture, but in across industries. And so how do we use um, agriculture, sorry, technology as a way of encouraging youth to, to um, be proactive in the agricultural sector and also the use of technology in increasing productivity and addressing some of these needs and challenges that have been addressed and that we clearly know are a gaping hole in, in our food systems. And so we look at high-tech and low-tech interventions and how young people are employing this to alleviate these challenges that they face and also how they're working with smallholder farmers. Um, then we also have the curation and support pillar. Uh, once again, the name is telling that once we identify this youth, um, how then do we work with them? How then do we make sure that um, as, as Generation Africa, we support them um, with the various needs that they face? And, and I alluded to some of the initiatives that we do um, for them, with them, uh, because of them. Then we also have the research and advocacy pillar where we seek to find out um, the active and relevant challenges that they're facing, the most pressing needs. Um, I'll give you an example of last year where we did um, a study, a mapping exercise, just to find out what were the effects of COVID-19 on youth-owned businesses. Um, so there's what people would have assumed, the stereotypical answer, like access to finance and so forth, but from majority of those uh, who were interviewed, mental health, came out strongly. And so with that, we were able to um, avail some therapy and coaching sessions for those who are willing to take them up. And that's just an example of some of the, of the work that we do because we want to understand first, what are the needs? What are the pressing needs um, for the current time and the current prevailing situation that is around them? And then um, we have then finally the National Ecosystem Development Framework. And for the first three, we are looking at the whole African landscape, whereas finally we're looking at an in-country approach um, because uh, we are aware that in as much as Africa as a continent has a similar set of challenges, um, each country has its own unique 
um, prevailing situations that vary from country to country and even within the country from region to region um, because we are not one homogeneous mixture. And so with that, we had our flagship initiative in Rwanda um, earlier on this year in March. And, and then we are planning on uh, launching in Senegal, hopefully in the course of early next year. And so that's um, in a nutshell, some of the work that we do and also the the way we are approaching this in changing the narrative by actually being the narrative we want to see. Thank you so much, Amanda. Um, I didn't envision that um, Generation Africa would be doing such amazing work with young people. I think the one thing that we don't talk about a lot uh, as we talk about agribusiness and agriculture is the stress that comes with it, you know. I grow food and sometimes it's very stressful when you go to the farm and everything has died, there's no rain or you have no market. So it can be pretty stressful. And I'm really glad to hear that um, at Generation Africa, you're looking at, you know, uh, mental health when it comes to agriculture. And Million, just hearing Amanda speak about the work that they do with young people and um, empowering them to get into agriculture and not just at the financial level, but then also, you know, um, that at the technological level, the coaching and all that. Um, hearing her speak about um, the amazing work they're doing at Generation Africa. What, we, what do you think um, we can, do you think we can feed the world or we can feed Africa per se with the current um, agricultural model of particularly over reliance on um, chemical fertilizers, pesticides and certified seeds. And this is um, in line with what Amanda has just said, like young people are, you know, they're trying to get young people into, into agriculture and let them use their, their skills and, you know, technological know-how when it comes to, to growing food. So do you think um, when young people are fronted with the over-reliance on chemical fertilizers, pesticides, certified seeds, is that is that a sustainable model uh, of, of growing food? And what are the dangers of, of this model if, if you were to give your word on this? I think uh, you answered it partly in terms of the question. I think when you open your statement, you've talked about the problem that's uh, um, occurring in, uh, or, or being experienced in uh, during the war between Russia and Ukraine. You know what has happened to Africa because of that, that war. Um, the the price of food has increased, and a lot of people are suffering now because of that. The price of fuel has increased. The price the price of artificial fertilizer has increased in some countries by fourfold. The price of uh, pesticides uh, have increased. The price of uh, cooking oil has increased. Uh, those countries who are uh, depending on wheat, the price of wheat has increased. Everything has increased. And that just tells you that, that you know, uh, dependence uh, on the current system is not sovereign. We need, we need sovereignty. Uh, that's why that's, that's the main topic, I think. Africa, if Africa needs, to be sovereign, we have to be sovereign. So question is, is it possible to produce food, to prosper without relying on these external inputs? And the other is yes. Um, I invite Amanda to really look at what we are doing with young people. We call them agroecological entrepreneurs. What's the difference between um, other entrepreneurs and agroecological entrepreneurs? 
I think agroecological entrepreneurs are responsible for for their activity. They 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 add value. They add value to the society. They add value to the environment, and they 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 they, they prosper. And quite recently, we have a, a large group of African uh, young people, African uh, young entrepreneurs, in our agroecological entrepreneurs network, African agroecological entrepreneurs network. Want to expand that in uh, at least twelve countries. Uh, we have already the basis to do that. You know, AFSA works in fifty of the fifty-five African countries, as you know. Um, so, so we need to do that. We are starting a campaign now, uh, which in the young people uh, want us to join, which is called "My Food Is African," and I'm in I'm in Addis Ababa now. For, uh, the, 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 the coming three days, we are going to deliberate on how to launch this campaign. Really, it's very very much important. Our soil is a very good soil with a, with a little addition of biofertilizers and a range of techniques now available, we can build our soil. We can, we can base our food on our diversity. Yeah? Every country you go in Africa, there is diverse food, but they are neglected, you know. They are ignored for a few crops. Yeah? Uh, for wheat, maize, mainly. Africa is becoming a maize country because of uh, the push by, by some agencies in Africa. So, so yes. We have quite a quite a lot of food, and, and there is no sustainability without diversity. There is no sustainability. I mean, in the, the changing climate, we're in a crisis now. That's obvious. There's no diversity in the changing climate. There's no diversity in degraded soil. There's no business. There's no agri business in a dead climate, in a in a in a dead soil, in a dead community society. We have to ask why. We are in a, in, a, in, a, in a problem that we are. And we'll find that in the political, when we were a political economy lens. It's not, uh, you know, it's not other lens. So that's what I wanted to say. Thank you very much, Million. And um, I'm really thrilled to hear that um, you're launching a, launching a new campaign on My Food is Africa. You know, uh, where I come from, I, I, I happen to grow up with my grandmother and I did eat a lot of indigenous foods uh, from my village, you know, this cow blood that I remember my grandma used to prepare, you know, it's cooked uh, on our side of the, of, the, of, the, of the country. And so I'm really glad to hear that you have this campaign around uh, My Food is Africa and young people getting involved on, on how they can, you know, they can showcase the different kinds of traditional foods from, the, from their communities. Thank you very much mm -hmm. for that. Amanda, coming to you, you've mentioned before that Generation Africa, you work with um, young people. And so we know that Africa has the world's largest continental youth population, which means that pretty soon it's going to have an enormous workforce. How can you make sure that the young people that you work with cut themselves free from corporate controlled agriculture that sort of seeks to benefit a few multinational corporations and not the young people themselves. Um, because we've had situations where or scenarios where young people complain that, you know, agriculture has become too expensive. They are dependent on, on chemical fertilizers or a lot of input, which they are unable to afford. So how are you making sure in, in your area of work that these young people then are able to 
make profits and at the same time um, protect the environment. You mentioned climate smart agriculture. How can they protect the environment or the very soil that they need for, for food production? Okay, that's a good question, Claire. And uh, for us, our modest operandi is different in that we don't um, prescribe anything to them on how they should do what they need to do. We actually listen to how they do it and then together we find out how can we move forward together. So um, for instance, uh, when we are running the competitions, uh, we when we do the call for applications, we want to hear from Claire, what does your business do? How do you do your business? And we want to understand from you how then, because we look at different criteria um, when we are um, awarding them. We're looking at the social impact we're looking at the environmental impact, we're looking at market traction, and we are looking at your financial sustainability. So um, when a business or a, a, an agripreneur comes to us and says, look, I feel like I am worthy to receive this grant prize, um, then that's why we are having this competition. It's a platform for us to see, acknowledge, appreciate, and then, um, accelerate these um, African innovators. So um, if they're in, if they're, um, for instance, they, they, they're using agroecological practices as one of their ways for environmental impact. Um, when we're looking at different aspects of their social impact, are they aggregating farmers? Um, are, they, uh, are they able to increase the profit margins from the smallholder farmer by off-taking from them? So we don't come to them and tell them, this is how you should do it. This is what we want you to do. We want to understand first, what are you doing? How are you doing it? What is the impact? And if you're able to demonstrate that to us, then we take it to the next level. So how then can we give you a platform for greater reach, for greater impact. Um, and so our approach is different. We don't come in with um, a sort of like prescriptive method, but through running these competitions, we ourselves are also learning about the different ways that the youth are innovating in their own environment. So we are just creating an enabling environment to foster and spur innovation amongst the youth and also create self-reliance. So as a business, are you financially sustainable? Because you find that some would sink to the tune because they are looking for funding and so on and so forth. But for us, we want to understand then, how are you able to achieve this nexus of social impact, financial impact, um, environmental impact, um, and still uh, be a business that is able to stand on its feet without any external injection. So that's the difference with which we come with. Thank you so much, Amanda, for that. And um, I like that um, you mentioned that you your work is to create an enabling environment for for young people to thrive in agriculture. And my next question is sort of linked with that. And since you had the the mic, I'd like you to just take it on before Million comes in. Um, in the spirit of creating an enabling environment, we know that agriculture cannot thrive if we have policies that sort of you know. Um, limit food production or punish uh, farmers or young people who are in farming. Uh, I'll give you an example. Like we have a policy in Kenya that sort of, um, it's actually a law in Kenya that 
that limits the use or punishes farmers from using indigenous seeds. And I saw the same law being passed in Zanzibar. Um, so if you have a group of young people who come to you and they tell you that they're using indigenous seeds, how then are you going to be able to help them in this case? And considering that then indigenous seeds probably under that country's policies and laws, um, they are banned for use. Okay, I see it's getting hotter here, which is good. Um, and so uh, we have different approaches that had started. And the final one, and not necessarily in terms of hierarchy, but one of the pillars that we have is called the ecosystem development framework um, that, that looks at in-country support. And we have different stakeholders here where we have governments, pri uh, private sector, we have the youth themselves, and then we are able to um, bring each person together um, and, and have a dialogue and see how is the effect of some of these policies affecting those who are directly on the ground. And also what is the feedback from the ground that can be channeled and funneled up to policymakers and decision makers to see how then they can be able to revise or amend some of these policies that can seem punitive to those who um, it's actually targeting. So within Generation Africa, we have the ecosystem development framework within which we, we have that avenue where we bring the different stakeholders um, along and across the value chain for, for that uh, consultative approach for feedback. Um, thank you very much, Amanda, for your response. And I think it's uh, important for that to happen because most of the times the young people that are involved in agriculture seldom have uh, meetings with um, some of these policy makers. You know, the, the law is passed at, uh, at the parliament level, like for example, in Kenya, and we only get to hear about it once it has already been passed. So it's commendable that um, your, your organization is doing that. And to you, Million, um, the same question. When we talk about food sovereignty, we can't talk about it without mentioning agricultural policies. How do you think that agricultural policies can be used to advance food sovereignty in Africa? To begin with, currently, African policies, laws, and regulations are developed under the narrative that narrative that I told you about. And that narrative is beneficial to certain actors, you know. Uh, that's why they are they are uh, proposing that narrative and doing their own, I mean, whatever they can to make sure that that narrative is hammered into our mind, into our activity. So whether you go to the policies at the AU level and at the country's level, the narrative is converted into policies, policies into strategies, and on ground, farmers are forced to buy seeds from an outside source. Uh, uh, governments are forced to uh, produce laws, the laws and the regulations that we talked about, you know, the seed laws, um, agricultural uh, investment laws, um, and laws related to uh, also land, you know. So, for example, just I've heard it from uh, highly, um, highly trusted source that Kenya was on the process of developing its own agricultural policy, you know, and it went through a participatory process. But suddenly, through 
through the funding that came uh, from Agra. And an outside agency has produced the Kenyan agricultural uh, strategy, the four year or five year strategy. Um, that's the truth, there's no denying. So, why is a question? And what is that policy? And what is the source of that policy? It is basically this narrative. So, so policy is very much important. You know, the, the, the purpose, I mean, the, the outcome or the, the statement that we've put under my Food This African campaign, my Food This African campaign is to, go to, to, to uh, encourage Africans to, I mean, I'm not saying it verbatim, you know, to encourage Africans to eat their own food in, um, in a conducive policy environment. So what kind of policy environment do we want? I'm not saying it's out of nothing. We did years of research on African uh, food policies, policies at the African Union level, and we did a policy analysis of 23 African countries. So what our finding is that the policies are not coherent, there is no accountability in these policies. What one policy says, the other policy destroys, you know? There's a lot of, a lot of chaos in our policies in Africa. So we have to have a vision. What kind of food system do we want as Africans, both at the national level and at the continental level? What's it? What do we want? We have to have a vision uh, as Africans and we have to have a current policy, a policy for trade, environment, agriculture, um, climate, uh, water, all has to read uh, to each other and they have to go to uh, producing a healthy and sustainable diet for Africans, uh, which is produced without impacting our environment, and which is which which enhances our cultural uh, uh, sustenance. You know, all that uh, is is very very much important in terms of policy. Thank you very much, Million, for that. And I I like the fact that you said that policies have to work for us, policies have to work for our food systems, for our resources, be it soil and water. And I think you've just lightly touched onto my next question, which was about the solutions. We've spoken about the problems and for our viewers who are listening to us, we don't want this conversation to just be about problems and problems. What do you think um, in, yeah. in, in one minute, uh, Million, what are some of the solutions that, that we can we can implement? We've spoken of agroecology, but beyond agroecology, what, what else can we implement to address the food situation in Africa? I think we need to implement agroecology. It's not beyond agroecology. Agroecology is a transition that we want, but funding should go to the right kind of uh, policy. Um, and said that currently even the, only 2.7% of the, 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 the aid from European, yeah, I mean, European Union comes to agroecology. The rest goes to conventional form of agriculture to, to support the narrative I talked about. So funding is very much important. And we have to look as Africa to solutions that are on ground, solutions that serve the, the, the ecology, the economy, the society of, of, of Africans. We need, to, we need to really put in our mind the food sovereignty framework. We have to be sovereign. We don't have, we don't have a solution. The prediction is that there will be coming pandemics, you know? Um, and in the, the, during the pandemic, we have seen 
the vaccine hoarding by Europeans, you know. This is an indication that uh, when the push comes to the shove, everybody is for himself, you know. That's a very clear indication. So, so we need to do that. But I, I would say we have to transition, transition to what is agroecology. And everything should be directed to that. It's not beyond. Thank you, Million. Amanda, um, what do you think are some of the solutions to the problems that we have? And um, what role do other countries play in, in terms of supporting Africa's path to, to food sovereignty? So I think I'll simplify and summarize my answer in this way, collaboration. Um, when we work in conjunction and collaboration with each other, because um, when we're talking about the subject and the issue of food sovereignty is um, how each parties are affected, uh, particularly um, in their own set of environments of which we cannot fully grasp and cannot come in with our own idiosyncrasies upon other people. So if we're able to have this ideal scenario where we have collaborative efforts between um, the different stakeholders, between governments, between private sector, between uh, civil society, um, with the producers, with the consumers, um, I know it seems a bit hypothetical at this point, but I do feel that there's, there's a, very important role that collaborating plays um, in achieving this uh, nexus. And so with that, um, it sort of also addresses the second question about how other countries can come into, into play. Sorry about that. <laughs> but um, how other countries can come into play in supporting Africa and also working together with Africa and collaborating with Africa in achieving and supporting um, food food security in our continent. Um, thank you very much, Amanda, for that response. I do agree with you that collaboration is important, but also productive collaboration um, that's, it's not, that is not exploitative is really critical in terms of addressing food sovereignty. And I can see there's a lot of questions from our viewers online, and um, they ask, what was the primary cause of losing food production power after colonial times? I think I'll throw this to you, Million. Um, I think uh, we have... Um, inherited the colonial system. You know, the colonials went, but they have left the system. It was still there. As I said, there were, there were four, four uh, uh, kind of reasons. Um, you know, instead of uh, controlling our food system, we are told that um, we cannot produce enough and um, um, the, the, the direction of the food uh, was outside, you know, you were told that if you produce more and if you sell it, then from the with the money that you get, you can buy food. So uh, our economy is reoriented, our food or agriculture is reoriented into producing for outside, for market. So that reorientation is not good. The borrowing, a lot of borrowing is very bad. And there is a poor investment in agriculture in Africa. Governments don't invest enough money in agriculture in the right kind of agriculture. So that's basically the reason. Thank you very much. I, I wonder if, if any of the African governments follow the Malabo Declaration when it comes to allocating their national budgets, a certain percentage of their national budgets to, to agriculture. Uh, no, no. I mean, I've, I've, I've sat as part of the 
uh, AU uh, participants, you know, in, um, I, I mean, as a number of uh, African experts, when the Bayana review of the implementation of uh, the CADAP was presented, it's, it's, it's pathetic in terms of the, the 10%, you know? Yeah. Only very, okay. very, very few countries, probably two or three. All right. And Thank it, you, Miriam. And by the way, where, mm -hmm. where does that money go is also the question. Thank you. All right. I see we are uh, one minute before time, and I'd like to give Amanda some, some time to answer the question from um, our viewer. So, Amanda, are you ready? Yes, I am. Uh, so the question was on the importance of native crops, um, food freedom and agroforestry. Um, yes. And so we can see that, um, especially what people call the forgotten foods, right? Um, they're high nutritional, like they have high nutritional value. And so when we're looking at food security, um, you're, I'm sure we're all aware that it's not necessarily about zero hunger, but we're looking at also food and nutritional security. And here we have the role of indigenous native crops playing a very huge factor because we find they're high in nutritional content, um, boosting uh, immunity and so on. And also in, in regard to how easily they grow in their natural environment. So ease of production in that regard. Um, and then uh, when it comes to agroforestry, um, which seems like a cross-cutting issue between uh, production and climate action, and one of the ways in which um, sustainable food production. Um, and so uh, it increases, you know, like crop cover and um, like carbon catchment areas and so on and so forth. So I think um, the emphasis of this is not like either or, uh, but to which uh, the scenario applies, I think there's, it's very important that when we're looking at aspect, and especially like, uh, I know Milian will be happy to hear this, agroecological practices and nature-based solutions and, and in terms of nature-based production. Um, yeah, so that's what I would say about the importance of this aspect. Um, thank you very much, Amanda, for that response. And I know we are one minute over time, but there's a question that's just come in, and this is from Joker. A million, he wants to know how is Africa as a con continent prepared in terms of food security in the face of climate change and water insecurity? In, in one second or in one minute, just respond to him. Very, very, very poorly prepared. Um, shockingly, shockingly prepared. There's a disaster coming um, and we are not getting our acts together. I think Africans are farmers, agriculture um, is, a, is a, the, the, I mean, the center of our economy, center of our life, and we are, don't have a very good strategy around that. So poorly prepared. Okay, thank you for that response, Milan. And uh, I would like to thank you both um, for your time. It's really been indeed a pleasure listening to you, Milan, uh, about the work you do at uh, AFSA and what you think of food sovereignty and Amanda, the work you do with young people at Generation Africa. That has really been inspirational to, to hear you speak about that. And indeed, I do agree with both of you that we need to make African food systems work for the African people. And uh, a personal, opinion of mine, I believe that our food systems should not be dictated by corporations who seek to make profit at our expense. Like if Africans are going to engage in agriculture, then agriculture ought to be 
working for us, it ought to be benefiting the people of Africa. Our children should not be dying from malnutrition. Our children should not be dying from hunger. So thank you both for creating time to be part of this conversation. And thank you again to all of you who listen to this conversation. It will be available on the GLF YouTube channel for you to listen back or share with others at any time. And please do check out the GLF Africa event on the 15th of September for many more great conversations such as the one we've just had now. And we look forward to seeing you there and next time here on GLF Live. I leave you with the words of Thomas Sankara. He who feeds you, controls you. Thank you and see you next time. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed our conversation today, join us again next week for another episode about how science can win against fake news and disinformation. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Stitcher, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. We'll see you on the next one.